Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. What are communities in Appalachia doing to address systemic racism? Not every moment is going to be a kumbaya moment. So let's get to work. We in a pandemic anyway. We don't need to be singing in nobody's choir. It's time for us to go to work. Across the country, people are reckoning with long-standing policies that perpetuate inequality and exact a human toll on our friends and neighbors. It's happening in Pittsburgh. I could tell something was up because I could tell how the area was changing. And a community in West Virginia is one of the few cities in the nation to establish an independent police review board. We'll check in on how it's working. Even though we have the Citizens Review Board, it's not fully utilized the way the citizens would like to. These stories and more coming up this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The death of George Floyd and others at the hands of police sparked hundreds of demonstrations over the summer and a national reckoning on police reform and systemic racism. These conversations are happening here in Appalachia, too. Many mountain people organize Black Lives Matter marches in small towns across the region, and they're taking a hard look at laws and policies that treat people unfairly. Part of that is figuring out how to reform police departments. A few cities do have independent police review boards, which are supposed to help make police more fair and accountable to the communities they serve. But how well do they really work? Reporter Emily Allen looked into one of West Virginia's only panels for civilian oversight in the town of Bluefield. You'll find Bluefield on the Virginia border. Driving down I-77, the mountains are so thick in the distance that they look blue. You can't tell where the horizon separates from the sky. Amen. Amen. It's in this small town of less than 10,000 people that one of the state's only groups for civilian oversight of police exist. Lord God, in the name of Jesus. I first heard about the group at a Black Lives Matter rally in June. Help those in high places to know that black lives do matter. It was one of hundreds of protests happening across the country in solidarity with events for George Floyd in Minnesota and Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, both black and both killed by police. I wanted to know what West Virginians had to say on the role of law enforcement agencies in public safety. We have something that activists have been fighting for all over the country. That's when one of the protest organizers, Shakira Irvin, mentioned the Bluefield Citizen Review Panel. We actually have a Citizens Review Board where uh, people who sit on that board and review cases of police misconduct. Bluefield has had a citizen review panel for the last 20 years. It exists because of a promise the city made with a federal judge in 2000. I wanted to learn more about how the group works and whether other West Virginia cities would benefit from a citizen review panel. But through records requests and interviews, what I found was years of non-compliance, a lot of closed doors, and an origin story rooted in accounts of police brutality. There were years when members didn't meet. They haven't produced annual reports to show for their work. And members' meetings are closed to the public. 
making it nearly impossible for people in Bluefield to evaluate the panel's work and their police department. To understand how Bluefield got here, I had to take a step back 20 years to a time when there were no cell phones, no body cameras, to capture arrests gone wrong. That's how I met the Ellison family. My sister Anne, this is Robbie's sister. Hi. And then my other brother, he's coming out. And then my other brother, you know, mama had eight kids. This is Lynn Ellison. Her family's roots run deep in southern West Virginia. Their grandfather was a coal miner. Their uncle, John, is a West Virginia Music Hall of Fame inductee. He wrote the song, Some Kind of Wonderful. That's my brother, Joe. Lynn and most of her siblings no longer live in Bluefield, but they return home almost yearly to see their father, even after experiencing so much loss here. Their mother died from cancer in her 40s. Their oldest brother, Jimmy, was shot and killed in the early 90s. And one early morning in September, their youngest brother, Robert Robbie Lamont Ellison, was paralyzed from the neck down in an encounter with police. Robbie was outside a nightclub with his older brother, Michael, and a couple of friends when, according to court documents, police asked them to leave. It was around 2 a.m. The officers were responding to a separate incident. The group didn't leave, so officers started arresting Michael. Robbie asked them to stop, and the officers began arresting him. When Robbie sued the city a year later, he said police slammed him against a car so hard that it broke his neck. Robbie's attorneys mentioned witnesses who said police hit him even after he was handcuffed. I got it. As a police officer, you have to defend yourself. That's this is Sam Ellison, another of Robbie's brothers. But I think that what they did was they went to the extreme with the force that they used on my brother. I know they did because he, they paralyzed my brother. Police have disputed that they're to blame. That includes Dennis Dillo, one of two white officers sued and accused interchangeably of hitting Robbie. Dillo is now Bluefield's chief of police. You know, when he went to the ground, he had what was called a diver's accident where he hit his head, you know, on his forehead. He landed on his forehead and it caused, you know, the compression in his neck that, you know, severed his spinal cord. Robbie also sued a third officer who was black for watching the arrest and not intervening. The case never went to trial, so no one admitted guilt. Robbie did get a $1 million settlement, and the city made two promises, to recruit more minority applicants and to create a citizen review panel for police. Robbie died a couple years later. His family and an attorney say that his death was due to these injuries from his encounter with police. The bottom line is his neck was broken, his head was bashed in. This is Robbie's uncle, John. I mean, if this police officer's life was being threatened, that's a totally different scenario. Then you do whatever you need to take this person down. But one thing for sure, he wasn't armed. He posed no threat to this officer, and they basically broke his neck 
they killed him. In June, John released a song that he wrote in 2003 as a poem shortly after Robbie's death. We are tired of singing the songs, we shall overcome. We are it details the injustice that his family and black Americans have injustice. seen. We want justice now. The song is called Wake Up Call, Black Like Me. This is a wake up call, America. This is a wake up call. After Emily started looking into Robbie's case, city leaders agreed to revamp the review board. They want to improve its transparency and hopefully its effectiveness. The city attorney drafted a new ordinance to codify the group and make its work more accessible to the public. Meanwhile, Emily dug more into the history of the review board. She spoke with Robbie's old attorney, Ed Hill. Again, here's reporter Emily Allen. 20 years later, there's hardly anything on the internet about this case. I would know because I tried looking. But scrolling through archives from the local newspaper, I got a sense of the publicity at the time. There was a lot of it. Part of the reason the case got so much attention was one of Robbie's attorneys, civil rights activist Johnny Cochran. You wear it well. You wear it well. God bless you. About a week after reaching a settlement with the city, Cochran, Robbie, and his uncle John were in Charleston, where Cochran spoke about the case at Grace Bible Church. When you look at what happened to this young man in the prime of his life, it becomes clear it shouldn't have happened. It's a grave injustice of this young man, who's forever now trapped in his body, paralyzed by virtue of the conduct of a person who's sworn to uphold the law. This consent decree was something that he really pushed and insisted on, requiring the citizens view panel. This is Ed Hill, a Charleston attorney who worked with Cochran on Robbie's case. He says, I've seen this in too many cities, that the, the minorities are not appropriately represented in the police department, and there's racial discrimination. The panel that Hill and Cochran requested involves five members. It must include at least one African-American member and one present or former police officer. The group has to meet quarterly. Members are allowed to investigate any citizen complaint or closed internal investigation. They're supposed to make recommendations to the police department for improvement based on their findings. Today, Hill is the only person outside the city that can view the Citizen Review Panel's work over the last 20 years. Hill was granted permission in 2013 after he sued the city for rejecting his records request. After I reached out to him a few months ago, he requested the last seven years of documents. He can't divulge what members did work on, but he was able to elaborate on everything that they missed. I was very disappointed uh, with what I'd seen. There had been some activity by the Citizens Review Panel, but there were actually several years that they did nothing. What do you mean by um, they did nothing? I think there were three years that there were no records at all. And when they did have meetings, they, they, it was not what I would have expected out of a, an active uh, Citizen Review Panel. The group also hasn't been producing their annual reports to show the city what they've done, even though the judge required that in his order 20 years ago. I think 
All right. Uh, approval of first reading so, of in September, city leaders city gathered for a virtual meeting and agreed on one small change, which they hope will create a big difference. They added the citizen review panel to city code, making the group an official city entity. Mr. Mayor, members of the board, um, 20 years ago, the city was a party to a lawsuit um, brought by a gentleman named Robert Lamont Allison. This is um, city attorney Colin Klein at that virtual meeting. Uh, My purpose in doing this, I believe, will increase board and citizen oversight of that body. Um, It functions. I want to make sure that it functions better. Theoretically, the citizen review panel's meetings will become public, although members will still have the ability to go into what's called executive session. If they're talking about something private under state law, they can close meetings. Colin Klein, the city attorney, has been with Bluefield for about three years. When I first reached out in June to get records from previous meetings, he said that he hadn't been as familiar with the group or its origins. Here he is in August. We definitely need to improve the operation and transparency of that entity. It makes me uncomfortable to have to improve the operation and transparency of a city entity, but, you know, it's our job. As the city attorney, Klein will now be attending panel meetings. At this point, we should establish what the Bluefield Citizen Review Panel cannot do. Before we knew about the panel's history of noncompliance, some advocates realized there's a lot that the group doesn't have the authority to accomplish. Even though we have the Citizens Review Board, It's not fully utilized the way the citizens would like to. This is Shakira Irvin again. We heard from her earlier at the Bluefield protest in June. They get to make suggestions on employment status. They don't get to actually make decisions. There's actually a law uh, in West Virginia that's preventing them from being able to actually have the teeth that citizens really want them to have. Irvin's referring to state code that outlines procedures for investigating and disciplining police officers. Employment protections are different for police than for other public employees. Whereas this law limits the Bluefield panel's ability to enforce its recommendations, the law has stopped other cities' efforts to establish their own groups for civilian oversight of police. In Wheeling, West Virginia NAACP President Owens Brown has been trying for three years to create a Citizens Review Board for police. Police cannot police themselves. That's just the reality. Before the pandemic, Brown said he was in constant contact with the city council about this. Every one of those law enforcement officers has the uh, authority to stop you. They have the authority to arrest you, they have the authority to incarcerate you, they also have the authority to kill you. In conjunction with the NAACP's stance nationally, Brown sent out information on civilian oversight panels to chapters throughout the state, hoping they would stick somewhere. For Jerry Carr in Morgantown, local president of the NAACP chapter there, the panel is not a silver bullet solution to problems with local police, but It is a way to inform the public and get members of the community involved with how police work and whether or not they're helping improve public safety. There's there's so much lacking in the public's understanding of what the police actually do. That that needs to be repaired. That needs to be brought into the light. And we think the Civilian Review Board is like the first step in being able to do something like that. When I was working on evaluating the Bluefield panel, 
I tried requesting additional police data to understand if their interactions with marginalized communities have improved since Robbie's case. The police department only shares racially-minded numbers on violent crimes and property theft, which are voluntarily reported to the FBI. That data suggests that police are disproportionately arresting the African-American community, who make up 38% of violent arrests and only about a quarter of the local population. Black people are also more often the victims of property theft in Bluefield. The police department has a low rate of solving these crimes. For more common interactions with the public, like traffic citations, Bluefield keeps no racial data. Simply put, the Bluefield community has an incomplete picture of how its police are interacting with its communities. Few police departments across the state report this kind of data. Then again, few West Virginia cities have a citizen's review panel. I think the citizen's review board, you know, is a good thing. I'm not opposed to it. This is Dennis Dillo, the Bluefield police chief. I mentioned it earlier, but he was one of the officers that arrested Robbie 22 years ago. In Robbie's lawsuit, Dillo was sued for beating Robbie along with another white officer. Dillo was promoted to chief eight years ago after serving in every rank. He says he's brought accountability to the force, tackling some of the, quote, good old boy nature that police departments are sometimes accused of. The city signed its first contract for body cameras five years ago, under Dillo's leadership. I wish we would have had body cameras for that because then things wouldn't have been portrayed the way that it was. Dillo's own policy, which was revised about four years ago, has clear penalties for not wearing a camera or turning it off. I just think that it's a necessary tool that should be on every officer's chest as, as, as much as the badge that he wears because it, it just it saves you from frivolous complaints all the way up to some major event. City leaders renewed their second five-year contract for body cameras in July. They hope that after codifying the Citizen Review Panel in September, improving its compliance, they'll have a more transparent, accountable police department. But for the Ellison family, from whose loss this panel was born, justice remains elusive. Maybe I'll be six feet under the ground by the time it changes. I don't know, but I feel that something needs to be done. If it, if, it, if it never happens with my brother, maybe down the line somebody else, but I still think justice should be served for my brother. 20 years after Robbie was paralyzed and 18 after he died, his siblings gathered in Bluefield. I got to drive down and meet them. We all wore face masks for the coronavirus pandemic. We sat on their father's porch and they remembered Robbie, a lanky kid with glasses that reminded them of Steve Urkel, a character from the late 90s sitcom Family Matters. Don't laugh. This is Robbie's sister, Anne. What would, like in your case, I mean it's been 20 years, but what would justice look like at this point to your family? If they would go back and actually investigate this case and not just sweep it under the rug. They did, no, nobody ever came and talked to us. Nobody, nobody ever accessed anything. It's not like they were dealing with somebody uh, 200 pounds and uh, seven feet tall. This is John Ellison again, Robbie's uncle. He could have been handcuffed and put in the car. 
to me, it sounded like he was treated that way simply because he was black. I can't see them doing the same thing to a white person. Emily Allen is a Report for America fellow. She first reported that story for West Virginia Public Broadcasting last month. Officials in Bluefield, West Virginia, say they plan to announce new members to serve on the police review board sometime in the next month. We've been talking about systemic racism and how it can affect police officers' work in a community. But it can also be much more subtle, written into long-standing laws that affect where we live, and whether we're able to hang on to our homes when someone wants to raise the rent. We hear that story when we come back. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back. I'm Mason Adams. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. Our next story is about how city planners and urban developers work together to shape cities and how they often leave poor people out of their plans. More often than not, black neighborhoods bear the brunt. In 2015, residents in Pittsburgh's East Liberty neighborhood learned they had to leave their homes to make way for a new development. The neighborhood had been changing for several years. For instance, Google opened its Pittsburgh office there in 2010. Bob Jamison is one of the residents who was forced out. He told his story to WESA's Margaret Krause, who reported about the changes in East Liberty for a podcast series called Land and Power. Let's have a listen to an excerpt from the first episode. I could tell something was up because I could tell how the area was changing. New buildings are going up faster than the weeds they're replacing. In 2011, Target went up on the site of an old housing tower. East Liberty has seen a lot of change over the years, and now it is in the midst of another boom. The police started policing the area more, running people off. A co-working space opened, and then a coffee shop. There were more white people in the neighborhood. Some of the long-term businesses were closing. Bob wasn't the only resident who noticed how quickly things seemed to be shifting. Philip Walker moved to Penn Plaza in 1976. He remembers comments, offhand, from people outside the building. You heard it a while back, then it became a little bit more... It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Donald Thomas grew up in East Liberty. You can sense the change coming. You, you, you knew. You knew from stories on TV. Now East Liberty is back. Sheldon Ingram shows us how East Liberty has become a destination location. Some more recent arrivals to East Liberty, like Gail Williams, didn't think much of it. Because it was always rumors going through uh, East Liberty. Because they was always tearing down, building up, tearing down, building up. All these restaurants start popping up. One national consulting firm predicted that Whole Foods would spark the growth of restaurants. And I said, you're going to have to have customers, right? So where is the customers going to come from? And I kept saying, 
only way I'll move out of here, they're going to have to tear this building down from up under me. Hundreds here scrambling to find new places to call home tonight. Neighbors in the Penn Plaza apartment surprised by eviction notices being slid underneath their doors. It gives the letters seem to be everywhere and nowhere. Some people found them under their doors. Some were in their mailboxes. This letter is to inform you that we will not be renewing nor extending your lease agreement. Margaret Krauss has been talking with Bob Jamison and other residents of the Penn Plaza housing development as part of a podcast series called Land and Power. I asked Margaret to come on our show to talk about what she learned about the residents in East Liberty and how they tried to fight all the changes that were coming to their neighborhood. So tell us about Bob and tell us about the neighborhood where he lives. Sure. So Bob Jamison worked for the railroad for a really long time. He retired, and he moved to a place called East Liberty, which is a neighborhood in Pittsburgh. It's one of the few actually flat neighborhoods. And so for almost its entire history, it's been a pretty bustling place. And around about the time that Bob moved to this place called the Penn Plaza Apartments, things were changing quite a bit in East Liberty. It had been at one point in time, a really well-known shopping area, super busy, lots of shops, lots of houses. Uh, and it went through something called urban renewal, which is where a lot of stuff got changed up um, as cities were trying to deal with the post-war era. Um, and it languished. It just kind of, for a lot of people, it, it ceased to be a destination, even though lots of people still lived there and still did their shopping there. But it just kind of struggled more than it had ever done before. And then of course, in the 1980s, Pittsburgh and lots of our region experiences the manufacturing collapse and the steel collapse. And so it struggled even more. And then by the early 2000s, 2010s era, uh, there was a lot more interest and investment that had built up over time. And so things were really starting to out, like lots more pressure for housing prices, you know, lots more stores coming in, lots more people. And so Bob moves to East Liberty at this really crucial point where a lot of people who had called it home are now finding that things are more expensive than their budget will allow. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that struck me about this series, Land and Power, that you did for WESA is just how transcendent some of these story themes are. As someone who covered Roanoke uh, for the Roanoke Times, I, I saw a lot of parallels where you scratch the surface on some of these issues before the Planning Commission and it goes back to this history of urban renewal, which a lot of people don't think about. You know, they just think the Civic Center has always been there. Um, but it, it was a source of generational trauma for a lot of communities and some neighborhoods, you know, right in the heart of the city. Tell us a little bit about what Pittsburgh's connections are to Appalachia. Lots of places defy categorization. And so I would say absolutely Pittsburgh is a place that defies categorization. But it's it is claimed by... The Northeast, sometimes it's claimed by the Midwest, sometimes it's claimed by the Mid-Atlantic. But, it, you know, Pittsburgh is in the western foothills of Appalachia. It has this same stunning geography that's carved from just rivers and ice and water over time that give us these soaring hills and these plunging valleys. And that has a real effect on what humans do here. And, of course, coal. I mean, so we have that – we have the same – or shared natural resource past and what that's meant for the people who live and work in our region of Appalachia. And and also what I think a shared concern about what the future looks like as a lot of our 
you know, a lot of our past of manufacturing or working with natural resources has changed dramatically and left a lot of cities and a lot of people in the lurch. And so I think the other thing we share is like, what what is next? How do we get there? And what do people do so that they can live lives in these places that they love? You know, one thing that strikes me about Pittsburgh as part of Appalachia is, you know, it it's, it it has struggled with industrial decline and the, you know, industry that fueled it for so much of the 20th century um, is changing. And, but um, at the same time, uh, you know, Pittsburgh is evolving and we're seeing new growth. And, um, and, and so I think that part is inspiring. And a lot of, um, a lot of Appalachian cities are looking to Pittsburgh to try to replicate that success and bringing new economic life to an area that had been considered, you know, quote unquote blighted to use the language of urban renewal, or maybe just needed some injection of new life. Um, so what, what lessons can, can Pittsburgh teach uh, other Appalachian cities? One major part of what propelled Pittsburgh is the city spent a lot of money on its own land and then getting to say who does what there, which can require money or creativity or both. But I think that's been a major part of the city's change, as well as finding ways to invest in itself through a really specific mechanism, which is like trying to draw venture capital, which I I guess is kind of like holding the tiger's tail sometimes. But probably, you know, the most powerful are partnerships. So, you know, Mayor David Lawrence in the 40s and early 50s reshaped Pittsburgh because he harnessed the power of a new federal law, which was urban renewal, which said, hey, if you're not if you don't really like what's going on in a neighborhood, if you call it blighted, you can tear down. We'll foot most of the bill. Give us a plan. Tell us what you're going to do. And, you know, you can you have now the power to go do that. And actually, that was a local state and federal partnership. So that was a huge thing. I want to listen to another clip. Uh, This one's from episode three. And it gets into this history about urban renewal and why it happened through the lens of David L. Lawrence's mayoral administration. So let's take a listen to that. David Lawrence took office in 1946. Pittsburgh was gutted by a hundred years of industry. The rivers overflowed with pollution. So much smoke and grit filled the air, the streetlights came on before noon. The Wall Street Journal called Pittsburgh a Class D city and didn't expect it to recover. People wanted out. A booming economy meant money to buy new cars, to drive down big new highways and away. More and more people chose to work in Pittsburgh, but live outside it. The GI Bill covered the down payment on a lot of new suburban homes. Social psychiatrist Dr. Mindy Fullylove has researched how cities responded to those changes. And she says at the time, there was another federal policy from the 1930s eating away at neighborhoods. The redlining process. Mortgage agents declared black and integrated neighborhoods the most risky, the least valuable. And they colored them red on federal maps, hence the name redlining. Neighborhoods don't become distressed by themselves. Neighborhoods become distressed because our society structures who gets money. Redlining pushed communities into a tailspin. City officials started to call them blighted. And this is important because in 1949, a new federal law came along and said, hey, cities, if you declare blight, you can tear the place down and we'll foot most of the bill. This was urban renewal. But there has to be something that people see to justify mass destruction. 
Mayor David Lawrence basically spread his arms and said, here's the justification all around you. He saw deteriorating housing and a dwindling white middle class, and he reached for urban renewal like a drowning person grasped at a buoy. He knew he had to take bold action to save Pittsburgh. First, he tore down part of a neighborhood called Hazelwood, on the banks of the Monongahela River to expand a steel mill. Then, at the very tip of downtown, where the three rivers meet, he cleared 59 acres of factories and homes to make way for a park and a bunch of office towers. Accolades poured in. But Mindy Fullylove can't shake a photo of Pittsburgh's brain trust from that time. The mayor, the civic and business leaders. 60-year-old white men, a whole bunch of them, like the corporate power of Pittsburgh, and nobody else. N- not, not any women, not any people of color. When that crew looked around Pittsburgh, Mindy says they looked with their biases. The areas they targeted for urban renewal were almost exactly the same places that federal mortgage agents colored red on their maps in the 1930s. Places where black people lived. Places where immigrants lived. It informed their next move. They tore down 100 acres of a predominantly black neighborhood right on the edge of downtown called the Hill District. The Hill District still hasn't recovered. You'll hear about that later. For now, we're going to follow the bulldozers to where they rolled next. East Liberty. So I think a lot of um, residents in Appalachia and other cities will recognize the phrase urban renewal. Certainly it's transformed the landscape elsewhere. Um, What's the legacy of urban renewal in Pittsburgh? I would say Pittsburgh is still recovering from urban renewal. And it's happening in different ways. So East Liberty, uh, the city acquired about 264 acres, knocked down about half and built these big apartment complexes, a ring road, and giant parking lots. And they kind of severed the historic Main Street from its customers, basically. In the Hill District, the Lower Hill, the land that was cleared largely remains empty except for the Civic Arena, which got torn down in 2012, I think. That was really the only part of the renewal plan that came to fruition. Uh, And now there's a new hockey arena there and plans for development, which is the actors involved say intended to rebuild the connection between the the Hill District and downtown, which the Hill District was a a predominantly black community when it was torn apart. Uh, And then there's the North side, which same thing, a ring road was put in, tons of buildings torn down and kind of a shopping plaza, Allegheny Center went in. And there too, they're trying to rehab that, the Allegheny Center, as more of a destination. And it seems to be seeing some success to get people to go over there. But you mentioned earlier generational trauma. There was so much wealth that was lost by communities in Pittsburgh that were affected by urban renewal. Because, you know, in America, mostly how you build wealth is your house or if you own a business, a business. Um, So there's that. But there's also just Community connections, when you can walk out your door and know, oh, I can be up to so-and-so's house in 10 minutes, or I can go to my grandma's, or, you know, that feeling you get when you go to do your shopping and you know the people who work in the store, or you see someone from school or from work, just that, that lovely feeling of community was trampled by urban renewal in Pittsburgh. And so that, too, the city is still recovering from, which, as you said, is not a unique story. It's all over the U.S. and, for instance, in Roanoke, too. And so the one thing I would be remiss if I didn't mention is that this hit predominantly black communities really hard and on top of lots of other racist policies that exist in our country. 
that's been a huge part of the history that I don't think we can neglect. You know, I, I spoke with someone who said, well, I would love to get a calculation of just how much wealth and potential wealth was lost because people's houses, their businesses, their entrepreneurial ventures were either destroyed or their wings were clipped by urban renewal. To, to spoil the podcast a little bit, the East Liberty residents don't win their fight and they're pushed out. So tell us what Bob Jamison's doing these days. He moved about ten minute, a 10 minute walk away from the Penn Plaza apartments. He uh, was retired then. He's still retired. Um, and he had been, you know, playing chess, spending time with his family. And then coronavirus hit. And he had been starting to get back into housing issues, looking at like, well, so these new developments that are coming to East Liberty, are they going to have affordable housing? What's it going to look like? Uh, but a lot of that's been been curtailed by the coronavirus pandemic. But he's still playing chess, reading a lot, following politics very closely um, and, and still in touch with people about housing issues. But unfortunately, right now, not able to do much. You can hear more from the series of stories Margaret reported, which is called Land and Power. She and her team at WESA dive deeply into Pittsburgh's politics of planning, looking at how the legacy of urban renewal has stretched across decades to shape decisions being made today. Those decisions disproportionately affect low-income, largely black residents. And they're made during work hours when a lot of the residents can't make the meetings. Land and Power is a story about Pittsburgh, but you'll hear a lot of parallels and lessons for other cities across Appalachia and the country. We've posted a link on our website at wvpublic.org. Up next, tensions were high at a recent Black Lives Matter protest in West Virginia. Counter-protesters showed up armed with guns and shouting racial slurs at marchers. We'll hear what it was like from one of the black participants. But the tone and the voices and the anger in the eyes and the clenched fists and the wrinkles of the forehead hurt more at that moment than those words. What happened? We'll hear more after a quick break. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Inside Appalachia, we're cooking up some really fun stories for the coming weeks and months. As we get closer to the holidays, there's always a desire to shine light on stories about hope, of people helping each other find ways to live the good life. These stories are important, but it's also important to grapple with the more difficult realities our fellow neighbors are facing. Now and for years, not all of us have access to the same opportunities. Tensions over racial injustice are high here in Appalachia, as they are across the nation. As Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from a jail cell in Birmingham, in an Appalachian community, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And while some of us have the privilege to choose to ignore the news and put these discussions in the background, many others don't have the luxury of that choice. Make sure the front is right over my head. Gotta put my hair up. This is Danielle Walker, a delegate in the West Virginia State Legislature. She's African-American in a state that's 94% white. 
She's putting on her outfit for the day, which includes a bulky, bulletproof vest, covers her front and back. I wear it when I drive. I wear it when I check my mail. I wear it when I take out the dog. Walker just won re-election, but she's a Democrat and her party is in the minority. West Virginia, meanwhile, just elected veto-proof Republican majorities. Walker's progressive and just one of three black people in the legislature. Wearing a bulletproof vest has become a part of her daily life. It felt like shackles and chains was being placed on my body once again. It breaks my mother's heart when she goes to give me an embrace. Walker started wearing body armor earlier this year after getting death threats. It all began when she attended a protest. The first time I put on body armor was September 12th for the Kingwood, West Virginia Black Lives Matter March. Like a lot of other protests this year, including some in Appalachia, the marching Kingwood got pretty tense. It divided the community, and like so many divides in this country, it left some people feeling like their voices just didn't matter. Report for America Corps member Chris Jones was there that day. He's with the nonprofit newsroom 100 Days in Appalachia. And a heads up, this story contains some offensive language, including racial slurs. Kingwood is an old West Virginia mining town, about 30 minutes from the Maryland border. Around 3,000 people live here. And back in September, this Black Lives Matter protest drew about a dozen marchers. The group includes white women and black West Virginians. They're flanked by three armed guards. They gather behind the community baseball field with their Black Lives Matter banner. And then they start their walk to the courthouse five blocks away. Frank Goins organized this march. His great-great-grandmother, who'd been enslaved in Virginia, moved here in the 1890s. The Goins family has lived here ever since. Frank called the sheriff's department weeks in advance of the march. I was just trying to make them comfortable to let them know nothing illegal was going to happen. I had no intention on doing anything illegal or inviting anyone that was having any intentions on doing anything illegal. But Frank's group isn't the only one in Kingwood marching this morning. Across the ball field, about 50 heavily armed counter-protesters are gathering. Many carry loaded rifles, shotguns. Almost all of them have a pistol on their hip. As the marchers make their way up the sidewalk, they're surrounded by counter-protesters. A motorcycle pulls alongside, its engine revving every time they try to chant. The security team tries to keep the counter-protesters away from Delegate Walker. She's wearing body armor, which you can see through her shirt. Walker's trying to calm things down. It isn't working. Before this rally, rumors circulated on Facebook that Black Lives Matter protesters were being bussed in from Baltimore and other cities. The Black Lives Matter protesters are all from West Virginia, but some of the counter protesters tell me they came in from out of state to defend the town. 
Many have Trump flags and MAGA hats. One of them has a swastika tattooed on his hand. He's wearing a t-shirt with the Nazi SS symbol on the front. What was supposed to be a peaceful march quickly becomes a standoff. Law enforcement officers look on while armed counter-protesters shout racist slurs. And a warning, this tape includes the N-word, something counter-protesters yelled repeatedly throughout the march. You'll be good, all right. You're a piece of dog. Afterwards, Frank tells me how it felt to be on the receiving end of these threats. I knew it was just going to take that one idiot, that one person, and more than likely it was going to be some uneducated, booger-eating scoundrel that had never handled a firearm or that didn't care whether they went to jail or not. But I just knew it took one shot, and I knew after that one shot was taken, I was going to be number one on that list of targets from that side that was there to hate that had guns, because one, I was the one who organized it. Frank also says he was worried about Delegate Walker. After all, he'd invited her to the march. As for Walker, she says she's heard those racist slurs before, and a warning, she's about to repeat one of them. Don't get me wrong, I've been called a nigger before. But the tone in the voices and the anger in the eyes and the clenched fists and the wrinkles of the forehead hurt more at that moment than those words. The hands on the guns, in the holsters, the fingers on the trigger, that was real. Local news outlets and law enforcement downplayed what happened in Kingwood that day. Walker wrote an open letter to Republican Governor Jim Justice asking him to denounce white supremacy. It took weeks before the governor publicly responded. And when he did, he echoed Trump's response to the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Whether it be either side, no matter what it be, we don't need to tolerate at any level, any level of hate and hatred and hate speech and everything to go on anywhere at any time. On election day, Kingwood elected a new sheriff, Republican Mo Pritt. He was Chief Deputy Pritt during the September march. He and other officers stood back that day as tensions escalated. I asked him if he thinks they could have done anything differently. From our perspective, could we have done anything differently? Yeah, but to me, nobody was hurt other than maybe their feelings, both sides, and they all went home. And we all went home. Sheriffs sit at the intersection of politics and law enforcement. And sheriff-elect Pritt would rather protesters just stay home. You know, you can be at home and believe what you believe. You don't have to come out here and do it in the middle of Kingwood on a Saturday. 
According to an Associated Press survey, nine out of 10 voters across the country were thinking about protests against police violence when they voted. And when Danielle Walker goes to the state legislature in Charleston this February, those protests will be on her mind. Well, not every moment is going to be a kumbaya moment. So let's get to work. We in a pandemic anyway. We don't need to be singing in nobody's choir. It's time for us to go to work. And when she does, she expects the threats will be there too. The body armor started on September 12th and it hasn't stopped. The threats come every time a news article comes. A threat comes every time I participate in a protest, a march, or even a vigil. The threat comes if someone writes an opinion editorial about me in the newspaper. That was Danielle Walker, a state delegate from Monongalia County, West Virginia. That story was reported by Chris Jones. He's a Report for America Corps member. The story originally aired on Reveal as part of a collaboration between 100 Days and Appalachia and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. It was produced by Jesse Wright and Reveal's Catherine Muskowski. George Floyd's death during an encounter with Minneapolis police on Memorial Day triggered a wave of protests and marches across America that involved millions of people. Experts said it might have been the biggest movement in U.S. history, and that was back in June. The demonstrations have continued since then, many of them here in Appalachia, including in small towns that have never seen anything like this before. I covered one Black Lives Matter march in Marion, a town in southwest Virginia that sits on Interstate 81. And like in Kingwood, in the story we heard today, counter-protesters gathered to meet them. There were confrontations and intense moments throughout the event, but near the end, the march stopped at a barricade where police stood. 100 feet away, counter-protesters stood behind another barrier, and for 20 minutes, the groups carried on a dialogue through megaphones, shouts, and chants. And at one point, this chant goes up from the marchers, I love you. At Inside Appalachia, we embrace the idea of serving all y'all. That's everybody. And we understand we have listeners from all backgrounds. I've spoken with enough Appalachians to know that some of y'all don't agree we need to have these tough conversations about racism, police violence, and democracy. But we appreciate you listening all the same. And if you don't agree with something you heard on this show, I hope you'll write us to tell us about that. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, even the criticisms. Our door is always open. Write to us. We're at 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25302. Our email address is insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Or find us on Twitter at inappalachia. My Twitter handle is at Mason Adams, M-A-S-O-N-A-T-O-M-S. Till next time, thank you for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John Ellison, Kaya Cater, and a special thanks to our friends at Mountain Stage. 
for allowing us to use recordings by Ethel Caffey Austin, Bob Thompson, and Rhiannon Giddens. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Sandro Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. My Twitter handle is at Mason Adams, M-A-S-O-N-A-T-O-M-S. You can also send an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.